It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Harvey Corman episode of The Muppet Show, featuring our own very special guest star, Ryan Rowe. Welcome back, everyone. We're so glad you're here. I am David Levy, and today with me we have... Christy Bauer. Adam Grossworth. And Michal Richardson. Since 2007, Ryan Rowe has been the co-owner and head writer at ToughPigs.com, the premier website for Muppet fans who grew up. In that capacity, he's written hundreds of Muppet-related reviews and commentaries, and he's managed to conduct interviews with several important figures from the Muppet world, including Frank Oz, Carol Spinney, and Paul Williams, without making a complete fool of himself. In 2013, he and his wife Stacy wrote and performed in their very own puppet musical, which was featured in the New York Children's Theater Festival. Ryan is originally from Texas, and he now lives in Queens. Ryan, tell us about your history with the Muppets. Yes. Hi. Um, my history with the Muppets, like I think millions of other people, I grew up watching Sesame Street. And then I just never stopped watching things that had the Muppets in them. Uh, my parents were always really great about like, if there was a Muppet TV special on or some new Muppet series, they would make sure that I watched it and often that we taped it. So the Muppets have kind of always been in my life. And then um, I like to talk about, there's a book called Jim Henson, The Works that came out in the 90s. And when I discovered that, I, that, that was sort of like going from just a kid who likes Muppets to like Muppet super nerd because there's so much information and history in that. And then I discovered that there were other Muppet fans on the internet and that uh, was amazing. And um, eventually I started writing for a Muppet fan website. David, don't you have something to plug? So I believe the same week that you're listening to this episode, you can also catch me on Donald Feltham's Broadway radio show, uh, which comes out on Sunday the 25th. He does a weekly show where he plays different kinds of show tunes, and I come on every once in a while to focus on cover version of show tunes. We're doing a show featuring Rogers and Hammerstein songs, and I promise you there will be at least one Muppet bonus track, but you'll have to listen to find out about it. Uh, you can find that at HaynesHisWay.com. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. <laughs> I love that URL, and I am very excited to listen to your episode. <laughs> Michal, you also have something to plug. I do. Uh, this is actually my second time this week recording a podcast episode with Ryan Rowe. A few days ago, I taped an episode of Moving Right Along, where our Tough Pigs friends Ryan Rowe and Anthony Strand watch Muppet movies two minutes at a time and talk about them a lot. And right now, they're talking about the Muppets Take Manhattan. Uh, and because they are much more on top of their game than we are, it's going to be a couple of months until that episode airs, but I had a great time. And if you enjoy Muppet podcasts, which uh, I think you might, uh, please do check out Moving Right Along. Thank you for that plug. Sure thing. We're, we are right in the middle of uh, The Muppets Take Manhattan right now. So if you like that movie, you can go back and listen from the beginning, or you can go back and listen to The Muppet Movie or The Great Muppet Caper. And stay tuned for... Wait, what movie are you going to watch next after Muppets Take Manhattan? <laughs> well, we're, as always, we're going to do a few bonus episodes in between for TV specials and things, and then it will be Muppet Christmas Carol. Excellent. And if you're wondering, how can they do episodes based on two minutes of film? Just trust us. Uh, they get a lot out of two minutes, and it's highly entertaining. I mean, we need 90 minutes on 22 minutes, so I believe it. <laughs> yeah, and most of the podcasts with that kind of format do an episode, like every episode is about one minute of the movie, so we're going faster than most of those people. Great. So this week, we are talking about the Harvey Corman episode of The Muppet Show, which aired in New York on December 13th, 1976. It was the 13th episode aired in the US. And here's where things get weirder than they usually do with this order. It's numbered episode 10, which is usually would mean that it is 10th in the production order, but both Muppet Wiki and the DVD, so I am inclined to believe this is true, say that it was made in late May of 1976, which means it was actually the fifth episode made after Ruth Buzzy and before Rita Moreno. I don't understand any of that, but this is where we But are. it feels like it, right? Like, yeah. We'll talk about this later, but it definitely feels more like the Ruth Buzzy episode than it feels like the Charles Aznavour episode. It's very odd, and I, I that maybe then checked the rest of the run, and except for Juliet Prowse and Connie Stevens, which were flipped, nothing else happens with the numbering the rest of the season. So I, I don't know what's up with this one. But here we are, somewhere in 1976. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. So this week, David and I are actually uh, swapping roles uh, because as uh, Muppeturgy's resident uh, Carol Burnettologist, I was deemed the most qualified to introduce 
uh, this week's guest star, Harvey Corman. So Harvey Corman was a comic actor who was most famous for starring in 10 of the 11 seasons of the Carol Burnett show, which was on from 1967 to 1978. And it was a pretty solid hit for most of its run. It peaked at number 13 in its third season. He often played beleaguered and exasperated characters. He was usually like in a sketch, like the second banana or the foil to a a wacky or clown character. And most notably, uh, he found himself paired often with Tim Conway, who was a frequent guest star on the Carol Burnett show for about the first half of its run and then became a regular for the uh, latter half. And uh, they ended up later touring and doing some of their uh, most famous bits live. And there uh, are actually films of their live show. And they were inducted as a duo to the Television Hall of Fame in 2002. Prior to the Carol Burnett show, uh, Harvey Corman was a fairly regular, oh, hey, it's that guy presence on TV in the 60s. Um, he, he was the voice of the great gazoo on the Flintstones. Uh, he had recurring roles or uh, multiple appearances on the Monsters, on the Donna Reed show, Dr. Kildare, the Danny Kay show. And the Danny Kay show was the thing that he was on uh, most regularly prior to the Carol Burnett show. According to Carol Burnett's book uh, about her show, which was called In Such Good Company, it came out in 2016. His uh, work on the Danny Kay show is what got him the job on her show because they were like, man, it would be really great if we could have a Harvey Corman type. And then they're like, oh, maybe we could just ask Harvey Corman. And she apparently accosted him in a parking lot. <laughs> He's also uh, pretty famous for appearing in several Mel Brooks projects, most notably Blazing Saddles, in which he played Headley Lamar. That's um, Headley. You said it correctly. I just wanted to say it. <laughs> uh, I, I'm happy that you did. And uh, after the Carol Burnett show, he tried to straight get out as a sitcom lead. He had his own show called The Harvey Corman Show that lasted one season. And then he also starred in one of the worst pilots I've ever watched. I watched it this week for uh, <laughs> to be able to talk about it. Uh, a pilot called Snavely, which was uh, one of three attempts at an American remake of Faulty Towers, uh, which he starred in with um, Betty White. And it, it's really bad, you guys. It's really, really bad. Is he is he faulty? Yeah, yeah. It seems like a good match. It, it does, it does. And yet it's it's one of those things where like the, the timing of it is it's just like abysmally slow and then... Eesh you know, racist and it's so not so bad that we should seek it out. The other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah not no, so it's, we will probably have a link in the show notes. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're curious, you know, it, not, it's out there. It's only, not bad. Like the star Wars holiday special. Right. Well, uh, thank you for bringing that up. Um, uh, I could talk all day about the star Wars holiday special. Um, Me too. Yeah. So, uh, so Harvey Corman plays three roles in the star Wars holiday special, which made me happy. I, I just watched it. I watched it with Adam. <laughs> This past year, for the first time, truly a gift. I, I, I was like, I'm, I'm saving the Star Wars holiday special for a rainy day, and then 2020 ended up being the ultimate rainy day, and so I finally went for it. And I w- was pleased to see Harvey Corman in it because I was like, oh, that means Carol Burnett is part of the Star Wars universe. So uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely worth seeking out. Um, also on YouTube, and um, and he he worked a lot. He worked until the year 2000. He died in 2008. And uh, he mostly did voice acting at the end of his career, did a lot of Nicktoons. He did more uh, Flintstones, but he also was on Hey Arnold and uh, Wild Thornberries and some different things. And just as a a last quick thought about Harvey, here's a thing that Carol Burnett said about him in that book. Uh, Honestly, I don't think there's anyone anywhere who can top what he did. He created hysterically funny characters with different accents and looks in only four days of rehearsals. Personally, I've always felt that you need to play tennis with a better player because your game only improves every time. That's what Harvey did for me as an actor. He made me better. He made all of us better. If you want to see Harvey in his natural habitat, there are lots of places in the world to do that. Um, the Carol Burnett show uh, is on the antenna channel, me TV five days a week. Uh, and it's also uh, got a 24 seven channel on Pluto TV. It's on prime video. There are a lot of places to get your Carol Burnett fix. Ryan, as our guest, uh, what were your overall thoughts of this episode? Um, so the last time I, revisited this I when I wrote a review of it for uh, the Tough Pigs website, I was really struck by how many significant early Muppet Show moments are in it. Like, I, I don't think fans tend to think of it immediately as being one of the classics, but or even, even one of the greats from the first season. But there are a lot of just individual bits in it that are really good that we think of as classics. I think several of them ended up on the 
Muppet Show album. Um, and then watching it again this time, I realized that really almost none of those rely on the guest star, which is weird because Harvey Corman is this great uh, sketch comedy actor from one of the great variety shows of the time. But the best stuff in this episode is all the Muppets. Like they, you could kind of cut Harvey Corman out of this episode and it wouldn't suffer very much, which is probably the first time on the Muppet show when they're starting to, I don't know if, if they're coming to know the characters better or just figure out what the show is that they're doing, but it's like, they really don't need the guest star in this one. Michal, how about you? Yeah. Ditto to all of that. There's so much to love in this episode. There's so much that made me just gasp and cheer when I recognized a bit that was coming because it's one of my favorite things in all of Muppetdom. This happened several times in the course of the episode. It contains many of my favorite things. I think that a lot of the Harvey Corman content was a bit of a swing and a miss. And I don't think that that was Harvey Corman's fault. Um, but they, they did a lot of great writing for the Muppets in this episode. And then some kind of weird writing for Harvey Corman. This episode contains so many of my favorite things and we will get into those in more detail later. David. Two electric mayhem songs is one too many for one episode. <sighs> two electric mayhem songs on the same set. On the same set, and both of which are original songs written for them. So it's just that sort of uh, weighed the episode weirdly to me. You know that I'm always a little bit more interested in the songs than the sketches. And yet, I also, I do love the sketches in this episode. I, I even, I especially love the sketch that Harvey Corman does with Dog, which we'll talk about later, I think. So it just felt uneven to me. So there are things I like. Uh, it's probably the best Fozzie Kermit sketch that we've seen. Overall, it, it just was a little off balance. Yeah, I agree with everything y'all have said. I um way back in our intro episode, and we sort of talked about our our like childhood TV diets. I don't know if I mentioned Carol Burnett, but like it was a big part of my household growing up. It was like the Muppets and Carol Burnett and and Mash and you know, a couple other things. And I didn't really remember this episode, but I was looking forward to watching it again because I like Harvey Corman so much. And um, yeah, I agree that his bits were not the ones that worked, or if they did, they didn't work be- because of him. Um, it was just kind of mad for me. That said, there was there was one bit that that has made me laugh every time I watched it, in- including just just in audio form. I'm sure it will again while we're recording, and uh, some really nice puppetry that we'll, we'll talk about. Um, like there were some things I liked about it, but I was I was disappointed that sort of one of the guest stars that I'm most familiar with was one of the weakest to me. Christy, did it live up to your Carol Burnett dreams? Sadly, it did not. I agree with everything that everyone has said. Uh, it felt really lopsided to me, and I, I also blame that on there being a second Electric Mayhem number. And I'm somebody who's gone on record as you know loving the the artistry of the puppetry of the Electric Mayhem numbers, but man, two is too many. And I, there could have been... I. I would have preferred a goofy Harvey Corman musical number because uh, he, he could carry a tune. He wasn't a singer, but he could he could do it. Um, so th- that was a disappointment. And yeah, not enough Harvey. Uh, and uh, they tend tended to write to only one of his sort of signature modes, which was exasperation. And he definitely had more uh, tools in his toolkit. <laughs> So as Chrissy mentioned before, we have swapped segments. I'm going to lead us through our journey into the music of this episode. The first number is uh, one of the two Electric Mayhem numbers. And even though it is a Muppet original, it may be familiar if you are an obsessive Muppet fan. And let's hear a little bit of it. Yeah, this is Dr. Teeth, and it's time to boogie. Three, four. I'm gonna explode an atom bomb. So as we know, Muppets love explosions. They think explosion equals comedy. Although Crazy Harry is not in this sketch, he is seen in the uh, in the show just before this sketch, so we assume that maybe he had something to do with it. 
What's amazing to me is that this song very nearly was the theme song to The Muppet Show. Uh, The first time that The Muppets, well, actually, the first time that The Muppets performed this on television was the day before the premiere of The Muppet Show Sex and Violence, which was one of the pilots for The Muppet Show that did not result in an actual Muppet Show. When Jim Henson went on the Johnny Carson show with Dr. Teeth, which was also Dr. Teeth's first time on TV. And they had some hilarious back and forth. And then uh, Dr. Teeth and Electric Mayhem premiered this song on The Tonight Show. On YouTube, the interview section is available on Johnny Carson's channel, but not the song. Uh, but we'll have that in the show notes. It is, it's just great. It's really wonderful. It's, if you've never seen Jim do a talk show appearance, it's just, it's just magic. Um, and it's particularly fun to watch him do it with Dr. Teeth because that's not a character we often see interacting with the real world. So it's uh, sort of an extra treat. This ended up being both a song segment in the Muppet Show Sex and Violence, but also the opening and closing credits music to Muppet Show Sex and Violence. So uh, clearly somebody in the Muppet hierarchy thought that this song was uh, at least, you know, extra good whether or not any of us agree with it i don't know do we agree with that it's it's a very different vibe than the muppet show theme song that they ended up with which is more sort of feels like more a variety show vaudeville let's put on a show whereas this is like this is a rock song i think in sex and violence they were sort of trying really hard to do the whole muppets are not just for kids so that's maybe part of why they chose this song for that pilot And uh, let's hear a little bit of what it sounded like as the theme song, where unlike the version that they performed during the show, they add one extra member to the Electric Mayhem, and that is Jim Henson in puppet form on banjo. It definitely has a little bit of that Saturday Night Live vibe to it. Uh, You know, there have been a couple of times where we've seen sketches and I've said, oh, this really feels like an 1130 sketch, not a 730 sketch. And I think that's maybe the case here. What's most notable to me about this song is that it was written by Joe Raposo, who is the songwriter most closely associated with Sesame Street. He wrote the Sesame Street theme song. He wrote C is for Cookie. He wrote Sing. He wrote Being Green. He didn't write every hit song from the early days of Sesame Street, but he wrote more than half of them. I also learned when researching this that he wrote the theme song to Three's Company and also to the Ropers, um, which uh, the Three's Company thing, I feel like maybe I knew, maybe I forgot, but it's but not Three's a crowd. No, that's one of my favorite pieces of like, did you know this was the same guy trivia? Like how uh, James Avery, who played Uncle Phil on The Fresh Prince, was also the voice of Shredder on the Ninja Turtles cartoon. It's good intel. Exactly. It blows people's minds when you say, did you know the guy who wrote C is for Cookie also wrote the Three's Company theme song? So Joe Raposo, uh, like me, grew up in Massachusetts. And he went to Harvard and he wrote a bunch of Hasty Pudding shows. So I was also part of Hasty Pudding. So we have that in common. Oh, did you go to Harvard? I didn't do it like that. Did you go to school in Boston? (laughs) Funny story. So the week before my freshman year started, there's all these different orientation programs. And I did the arts program, uh, a program I was accepted into based on the strength of an essay I wrote about the Muppets take Manhattan. Oh. And on the first day of the program, we were in a songwriting workshop and the person who was leading the workshop starts talking about the song rubber ducky and says, do you know who wrote this song? It was written by a Harvard grad, Joe Raposo. And my hand shoots up. And I said, actually it was written by a Yale grad, Jeff Moss. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> the kind of guy so I was in college. <laughs> that's a much more exciting rivalry than a freaking football game. Right? So anyway, Joe Raposo, when he graduated, he played piano bars in Boston and Jonathan Schwartz, the famed and since disgraced WNYC DJ, has taken credit for encouraging Joe Raposo to move to NYC and seek his fortune. He did. He met Jim Henson. Another fun fact that I learned about that is there is a rumor that seems credible that Jim Henson in part based Cookie Monster on Joe Raposo's love for the snack. His biggest hit was Sing, the Carpenter's version, hit number three on the Billboard chart in 1973. He also wrote songs for films, including The Great Muppet Caper and uh, the truly dreadful animated version of Raggedy Ann, which was later a Broadway flop. So it's been two weeks since we've talked about Frank Sinatra, who is probably the celebrity who is not a Muppet Show guest star that we have mentioned the most. 
And it's worth noting that Sinatra was a big fan of Joe Raposo's. And according to Wikipedia, when he was recording his comeback album in 1973, Old Blue Eyes is Back, he wanted it to be an album entirely of Joe Raposo songs. And the record label thought maybe that was a little bit much, but he still ended up with four Raposo songs on a relatively short album. Uh, so that's impressive. And none of them are, are Muppet Show songs. And they're all pretty lovely. You should listen to them. Anyway, uh, Joe Raposo died in February of 1989, three days before his 52nd birthday, and uh, just a little more than a year prior to Jim Henson's death in 1990. There was a really beautiful television documentary tribute to him that aired a year later, and it is really heartbreaking to watch it now because it starts with a slide that says something like, when we recorded this, Jim Henson was still alive and he has since passed away, and that's very sad. (laughs) except it says it classier than that. Uh, it's still really sad. Either it way. is. Uh, we'll include a link to that in the show notes. Uh, so that's, that's that song. Anyone else have anything to say about that song? Just that the, uh, the DVD trivia informed me and I wish I could unlearn it, but now I'm going to make you all suffer that the, um, the Janus was originally uh, a, a design that never got made called sexy CD, like <laughs> sexy Sadie, but CD, uh, and she kind of looks like uh, Dr. Teeth's head on Janice's body. And uh, we'll put a link to the Muppet Wiki in the show notes. And I do not care for it. And I'm glad we got Janice instead. <laughs> but this is what you get on the DVDs sometimes. Because we got so much Electric Mayhem this episode, I, I found myself paying closer attention to things that I'd never thought about, including how sort of radical it is. I mean, for as much as we we rag on the the lack of female representation in the Muppets at large, how sort of radical it is to have a female lead guitarist in a band. Because at this point, there had only really been one chart-topping band with a lead female guitarist, and that was hard. Like, I I went digging to see if there were any others that were that prominent, and there really weren't. So I'm going to give them points for that. So the next song that appears in the episode is the other electric mayhem song which to be fair was a uk clip and i might have liked this show better without the uk spot which i think is the first time when i felt that so oh, that's a thing i feel that all the time <laughs> I, yeah oh right i just remember that terrible baskerville song <laughs> <laughs> and now you're thinking about it in german i am Belunkenstraße. neblige nacht kommt der gasmann Macht Licht und lacht. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, the UK spot is another Muppet original called Sweet Tooth Jam. And this one was written by the Muppet Show musical associate slash pianist Derek Scott. I mean, it just goes on like that forever. You get the idea. <laughs> I mean, listen, I'm not a jam band guy. I will say that any jam band would be improved by having Animal just screaming jam, jam, jam <laughs> over and over and over again. <laughs> so, uh, Fish, if you're listening, please uh, take the note. <laughs> this is where I really noticed the puppetry. I mean, the two numbers are almost identical, but because of the way that they're jamming and the way that it's filmed, I think, right? Each one gets a solo, then they kind of throw to the next one. Like, the puppetry is remarkable. There are no lyrics, so all you can really do is, like, pay attention to the puppetry. And, yeah, it's 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 really convincing. Yeah, and to Christy's point, Janice especially is just fierce in this. Like, yeah. she's, it's really fun to watch her. Like, I won't go quite so far as to say it looks like they're really playing, but it, it it's really convincing. I can't remember if it's this one or the first one, but w- one of the two numbers opens with, like, the light glinting off of, off of Dr. Teeth's gold tooth. Uh, it's so good. <laughs> this is also the first time I've really thought about the musicians in the Muppet show, like the real ones. <laughs> mm. Right. Like I, they, I mean, I assume they're just session musicians who they, you know, brought in to record stuff as needed, but I mean, these guys are good <laughs> and it fits what they're doing really, really well. Um, and they get zero credit ever. And, and I hadn't thought about that in 
in 10 episodes until now. Yeah, I, I have heard before the name of the drummer who actually did Animals Drumming, but like I, I can't think of it now. Yeah, these guys. I just read it on Twitter today. Oh, okay. There was uh, uh that doesn't mean I retained it. <laughs> <laughs> we will we will find it and put it in the notes. I, I do think that they did use the same same musicians like week after week. I don't think it was just session players. I think they had a regular at least core group. Yeah, it was a consistent uh, band on the show. Yeah. And, you know, Derek Scott, in addition to being the music associate, was also the pianist who played every single time that you heard Rolf playing the piano. That was him. To the point where when they did the Rolf album, Old Brown Years is Back in 1984, Derek Scott came out of retirement to play piano for it. He also wrote a lot of the music that we associate with The Muppet Show without really thinking about it, like the theme song for The Swedish Chef, the Veterinarian's Hospital organ music, the Pigs in Space song. So he's one of these people who I think probably had a much bigger impact on how we think of and especially how we remember The Muppet Show, despite most of us probably not really ever having heard his name before. Yeah, somebody had to write all that stuff. Yeah, it's really cool. I will say about this second number, it, this definitely felt like the moment at which the electric mayhem started to coalesce as the thing that I think of as the electric mayhem. Like this piece of music sounded a lot to me, like the piece of music that they, they play on the bus in great Muppet caper. Doesn't mean that I necessarily needed two of their numbers in one episode, but one thing about the electric mayhem seeing them do all these songs with Zoot in the band uh, growing up made me, uh, gave me the impression that like most rock bands have a saxophone player, which is not generally the case. We did grow up in the eighties, so it was a little more true then. Oh, that's true. There were there were a lot of saxophones in the eighties. Yeah. So this song uh, had less of a life than uh, than the first song did, but it was reused once again in a, a later Jim Henson production, The Animal Show, uh, on episode 107, Zebra and Lion, which I was not able to find online, but I believe Muppet Wiki when they tell me that it's in there. <laughs> Michal, you said that this was on one of the albums, but I do not remember that. Yeah, or at least I, I remembered hearing it on an album that I had. Um, yeah, I forgot to look it up, but it's on one of them. Or, and, and it might have been recycled onto one of the later compilations, which struck, struck me as odd because you don't actually hear the characters singing. Like, it's mostly instruments you would think that they would choose a song where the muppets are actually singing right aside from animal yelling jam and um the band members yelling go right it's just screaming Uh, right i mean which is fine for an electric mayhem song it was just yeah that's rock and roll wasn't seen yeah it wasn't seen by american audiences but then it was released onto an album according to the muppet wiki anyway uh one muppet show music album in 1979 and then another recycled muppet hits in 1994 because yeah i remembered like hearing this on a tape that somebody made me out of their record. I definitely remembered people yelling. Right. Go yeah. The 1994 uh, tape is probably the one I had. And in the Disney infinity video game, this song plays when the series two power disc electric mayhem bus is scanned into the game and written. The only other thing I want to say about both of these spots is that it was interesting to me that the f- way they were filmed was pretty different from the way Sonny was filmed from uh, a few episodes back where one of the things that really struck me as being quite beautiful about Sonny was that it was a very fluid camera that sort of wandered through the band as they played. And this was very much like cutting from person to person to person. And I don't know how much of that was a conscious decision to try to make it feel a little more jagged, a little more rocky. If it just happened to be, it was a different episode director and that's how they took it. Uh, But it stuck out to me as maybe one of the reasons why I like this slightly less than that one, but also probably just, I like that song better. I don't know, man, electric mayhem. I like them as a concept, but I think like a lot of fine spices, they are best used in moderation. (laughs) Well, and I do think, I mean, the UK spot often feels kind of thrown together. And the fact that this is just the exact same set as a number in the same episode just adds to the feeling of they weren't, trying very hard, which is not to say it's not a good number, but to have, you know, <laughs> uh, it, it just felt, it felt odd to me. Like, Oh, we need, we need filler. <laughs> so let's just do another song here. You know, they did a good job with it, but it, it has, you could tell that it's maybe not their priority. Speaking of things that felt thrown together, let's hear from Wayne and Wanda. I get no kick from champagne. Near alcohol, the 
doesn't thrill me at all So tell me why should it be true That I get a kick <laughs> So this is I Get a Kick Out of You, the Cole Porter standard from Anything Goes, which was introduced by Ethel Merman in 1934. Uh, the reason I say it felt thrown together is because it's presented with like a framing device where Sam the Eagle comes out as he often does to introduce Wayne and Wanda and talks about how moving this performance is to him. And he he's, he's misty eyed and he has a, you know, he's dabbing his eyes and then they do this ridiculousness. And then he comes out and he's still, he's still crying. So overcome by this. I have a conspiracy theory, which is that I believe the Sam, the Eagle frames that go with the Wayne and Wanda sketches may have been done independently of the Wayne and Wanda sketches and then just sort of mixed and matched, which is why in a previous week we talked about how there was an introduction that was used in the show to introduce a different number than it was when the same introduction was used on the album. Uh, I think there's a little bit of like a modular furniture thing going on here. And does it also explain why the one that makes him so overcome by emotion that he's wiping tears out of his eyes is also the one where Wayne kicks Wanda (laughs) in the butt? (laughs) Oh, I think the conspiracy theory is very likely, but I, I think you could also explain it away by saying, like, Sam's probably not actually watching this stuff. He's just, you know, posturing on stage and then not even paying attention. How dare he? Yeah. This might be my favorite Wayne and Wanda yet, oddly enough, um, which is a low bar, granted. But, um, like, usually some catastrophe befalls them. And in this, um, Wanda is upstaging, technically downstaging Wayne. And he gets annoyed and kicks her, which is like, it's not, it's not great. I'm not saying I'm, I'm a fan of, the, <laughs> of spousal abuse, but like it creates a different dynamic between them that I enjoyed. Um, and like just puppetry wise, like his, his little frustrated face as he's trying to get around her. It was really cute. Um, I, I liked this. It's also the first time since the Connie Stevens episode where we've seen anything resembling characterization for the two of them. Right. Hmm. Yeah. If this had evolved into, more violence between them. I wonder if it would have been more interesting. I don't know why they stopped doing Wayne and Wanda bits, but I I wonder if they just thought like they were going to run out of ideas eventually, but it would have been interesting to see. Yeah. What else they could come up with and if they could become actual characters, if they had stuck around. Uh, Is, um, is Wanda played by Aaron Oscar? Yeah. That might be why they stopped doing it. Yeah, and they do actually come back, like, I want to say in the fourth season, maybe, for like a one-time appearance, where I think she's played by Kathy Mullen, maybe. But yeah, then then they're basically never seen again. This is the first time that I truly clocked how bad a singer Wanda is. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) She's doing her best to bring culture to this ragtag bunch of performers. Anyway, uh... This song, uh, you know, it listen, it's a classic song, has a lot of history. It does have some Muppet history in 1993, so after this. Sesame Street did their version of it, where it was performed by Ethel Mermaid, performed by Louise Gold, uh, where she got a kick out of the letter U. Louise Gold will eventually join the cast of The Muppet Show in later seasons, most notably, I think, is Annie Sue. And in between The Muppet Show and when she performed on Sesame Street, she actually starred in a West End revival of Anything Goes, singing the actual song, I Get a Kick Out of You. So that was kind of neat that she got to do a parody of one of her own numbers. Hmm. All that time on The Muppet Show, she had this uh, Ethel Merman impression that they never used. That's sort of shocking. Yeah, you know, you would think. Well, we have been down this tangent long enough. Uh, there's <laughs> one more song in this episode, which is really probably the most classic Certainly the most classic Muppet song in this episode, maybe the most classic Muppet bit in this episode, and that's Halfway Down the Stairs. Halfway down the stairs is a stair where I sit. There isn't any other stair quite like it. I'm not at the bottom. I'm not at the top. So this is the stair where I always stop. So this is another one like Coddleston Pie that originates with A. Milne, although while Coddleston Pie comes from a Winnie the Pooh story, this comes from his book, 
When We Were Very Young, which is all poems, but set to music by the same composer, Harold Fraser Simpson, who was a World War I-era British composer of light music, uh, who is best known for the song Love Will Find a Way from the operetta The Maid of the Mountains. We talked quite a bit about this uh, a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to go too deep into it, but uh, like Collison Pie, this was also sung by Jack Guilford on his album of Winnie the Pooh and related songs. Um, and since we've now talked about it a couple of times, I thought it'd be fun to just hear a little bit from that album. This is a hum about a favorite place of Christopher Robbins. I have a favorite place too. You know where it is? With him. Halfway down the stairs is a stair where I sit. There isn't any other stair quite like so depending on where you are in your life and <laughs> how you feel about such things, this is either like a very sweet, very charming, very nostalgic song about childhood, or it's just like treacly garbage and like, get it away, get it away, get it away. Where do y'all f- fall on that? <laughs> Even just the opening strains of it fills me with I, many feelings at once. <laughs> just like hear, hearing the opening to it, I just started crying. Yeah. Yeah, same. I I weep. I, I I always know that like if if I've gotten a lot of comedy and business in an episode, that there's going to be an existential punch to the gut near the end. And who boy was this that for me? Yeah, I, I think that, you know this is an episode full of like explosions and animal screaming and dumb uh, chicken jokes and things. And then yeah, it is kind of amazing that they they wind things down at the end of the episode with this very slow, sweet song sung by like the cutest Muppet on the show. And there it's, it's just part of them figuring out how the show is going to work. It's this ability to balance comedy and weirdness with the sweetness, which I think is, yeah, that's really going to work for them in the long run. That's one of the reasons this group of characters are so beloved. This, uh, I mean, I find it incredibly tricky but I'm so glad that we watched it. If I had just listened to it, I would have been like, please no go away. Um, but it's so, the puppetry is so lovely. Robin is so expressive. David, you mentioned the camera in the electric mayhem number. The camera's doing a lot of work here too, to, to help that. Um, I just loved watching it. And I, I don't necessarily like the character Robin's going to become, but he isn't that here. He's just this cute little frog singing this sweet little song. And I, I really, I found it very sweet. What is it you object to about the later Robin? I just find him kind of annoying. Oh, I mean, <laughs> because he's so cute, or is there something else? No, his personality. He's very cute to look at. I mean, that's, yeah, okay. Yeah. Adam, I'm, I'm with you. I think there's something about the specific way they chose to stage it that makes it because they they stage it on the staircase that is sort of floating in time and space. There's, it's not like a staircase within a house there's no context it's just a staircase and yeah, that framed by bisexual lighting <laughs> <laughs> in some versions that also feels very 70s variety show to me right where you would you the idea like the single set piece for the number on the bare psych stage feels very sunny and share or you know name your name your show to me and, and it, works. If you're- it works so well and if you're playing the game of where's the puppeteer, then you realize that Jerry Nelson is just like standing inside that staircase, sticking his hand up through that one step. Yeah. There's one moment when the carpet moves. Uh, just a tiniest bit. So one of the weird, th- there are a couple of really weird things about this number. Um, I'm not sure which is weirder either that it was released as a single and it was a hit in the UK. Yeah, definitely that one. (laughs) Yeah. It made it to the top 10. They featured it on top of the pops. Um, And Menominal was the B side. I feel like that would be the other way around. Yeah. But it's so, I mean, it's such a British song, I guess. Guys, I mean, this is making me want to start an offshoot podcast about the British charts, because every time the British charts come up in our conversation, it's because there's something bonkers. Like, there were three versions of the same song on the chart at the same time, or, you know. Or Robin the Frog was a pop star. (laughs) Exactly. 
I mean, if you had asked me to name which Muppet would have a top 10 single, I don't think Robin would be in my first hundred guesses. Well, Ernie did too on the Sesame Street side. Uh, Rubber Ducky was a hit also. Yeah, but that makes sense to me in some way. Yeah. It's catchy. Uh, Yeah, I could hear the potential dance remix of Rubber Ducky. (laughs) So then the other weird thing about this song is that there's two different versions of it. From the Muppet Show itself, not counting the version from Top of the Pops, there the other version has uh, a little more—I I don't know, like ornate or realistic staircase. It, it's a little bit less of this floating in space feeling, and I'm not sure why the Muppet Wiki says it was refilmed for certain international versions, but it doesn't really say why. And I believe the version that we see on Disney Plus is actually the refilmed version, not the original version. Anyone know about that? Only I don't know. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. yeah, I don't know why they would do that. Especially because I don't know of any other examples of them doing something like that. I know that one of the two is on one of the compilation VHS tapes because that's where I primarily know it from. But I think it may be the other one. So we'll have a YouTube video that we found that shows them side by side. So you can uh, watch them together and judge for yourself which one you like. Is it the same audio track on both? You know, I I think so, but it's not entirely clear because they had to pick an audio for the YouTube video. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah, I would guess that they just used the same recording and just had Robin lip sync. Yeah, I mean, in the side-by-side comparison, it times out the same. So either it's the exact same recording or it's a recording with the exact same rhythm and timing. and it it matches up perfectly. Yeah. Robin was trying to get that hit, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was like, my eye focus wasn't good. We got to do it again. Because <laughs> that is one thing that I, and maybe it was just the the lighting or the something about the the quality of the original recording that didn't last well. But yeah, when we saw that side by side, when I was like, that, that eye focus is yeah. off. Mm. Something's the second not one right. does seem that, better. That, yeah. And maybe once they realized that it had chart potential <laughs> i can't believe i'm saying this uh that they wanted to film a video that was a little more pop oriented isn't the right word but that just you know something that was a little bit more for the ages and not just another sketch on the show i don't know and for the bisexuals yeah they should have put robin in a flashy costume oh man spandex robin yeah. well fringe anyway unsurprisingly uh this number was also one of the songs performed at the Jim Henson Memorial in New York performed by Jerry Nelson. And we'll have that video as well in the show notes. Ready? Three, two, one, fire! All right. It's shout out of a canon time. We're going to talk first about this little animal and Kermit bit, which is not exactly canonical. It's not unlike a talk spot. uh, If you can call interviewing animal a talk spot. Well, I, I guess uh, your drums uh, mean a great deal to you, huh? Ah, yeah. Oh, nice. You like them more than food, I guess, huh? They are food. Eat drums, eat chipmunks. <laughs> How symbolic. Bad bun. <laughs> yeah. I just made Adam clip that so that I could point out the missed opportunity for a drumstick joke. <laughs> That's a good reason. <laughs> That's. Thank you. Uh, the the end of the sketch is a little bit of a cop out, but it is fun to yell "Krupa Krupa" at any opportunity. Uh, listen, I imagine you have a lot of idols. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Buddy Rich. Oh yeah, yeah. Gene Krupa. Yeah, Krupa Krupa. Uh, Tony Checkers. Tony. Uh, he's our new drummer. He begins next week. Uh, then again, maybe not. Right, that doesn't make sense. Why would Kermit say that? Kermit's a dick. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's it's the wrong time to to break this news to Animal in front of the audience and on the show. Yeah, that's never going to end well, no matter where you break it to. <laughs> I this so I looked to make sure this bit was this episode was taped before the Rita Moreno episode, which means like this is one of the first spotlights for Animal, and it's remarkable to me, especially when you consider how like. They don't really quite know who Fozzie is yet exactly. They don't know who Piggy is yet. That animal shows up 
pretty much fully formed. This is very close to the animal that we know today or the animal that you see over the course of the rest of the Muppet show. So it's just, I guess there's not much to animals character. So maybe that made it easier, but it's just remarkable for that reason. Yeah. I mean, he's a one note character, but it's a really funny note and it, it remains funny for decades. Yeah. And also the fact that he's talking about eating his drum set, it's just, there's this sort of ongoing thing where it's, there's a little bit of a fuzzy line between animal and cookie monster. Sometimes cookie monster would definitely eat a drum set if he had the chance. Yeah. Be, yes, beat drums, not eat drums. Right. <laughs> it's an important distinction. Have you heard Frank Oz's things, a uh, thing about the five words that sum up animal? No, but tell us. share with our audience. Sex, sleep, food, drums, and pain. Okay. And then he likes to talk about how Animal is the kind of guy who goes out all night and you don't know where he's been. And when he comes back, you don't want to ask. I love that. Animal is one of the few Muppets who consistently has legs and pants. Uh, yes, he often does. <laughs> Frank Oz is just so good at creating characters. And this is just like an early example on the Muppet show. Yeah. And I, I know that, you know, he... He made it his business to write complicated backstories for his characters, and I've read the the summary of what he had in mind for Miss Piggy. But yeah, I never really stopped to think about like, yeah, there's a, a detailed backstory for Animal yeah, as well. Yeah, even for that the guy sense. who just yells and hits the drums really hard. All right, well, let's clean this up with a talking houses spot. My insides are killing me. Oh, ulcers? No, movers. <laughs> Well, that was terrible. I feel bad. What more do you really need? a joke? <laughs> it's not. <laughs> I I am. I thought it was hilarious. I mean, I still love it. It just wasn't really. I have long suspected that they came up with a few talking houses jokes and then built the puppets and then realized that there there were no more funny jokes to have houses tell. But then they were stuck with these puppets that they had spent a lot of money on. So they're like, all right, I guess we just got to keep using these for the rest of the season. Yeah, even though they had already done the shingles joke, they still had to right, do it. Right, there's nowhere else to go. Justify the expense. Yeah. yeah. So, Harvey Corman as an animal trainer, uh, known in the context of this show as Maurice the Magnificent. Harvey Corman is an animal trainer with a flair for the dramatic who hates his job and hates the animal that he's training, who happens to be uh, my favorite Muppet of the Week, Thog. Uh, it is a sketch. It's not a canonical bit, but... Uh, We've got to talk about Thog uttering my favorite line of the week. Speak! Speak, you demon! Speak! I hardly know where to begin. I was rereading Balzac the other day, only in translation. Enough! <laughs> so it doesn't really work to have Harvey Corman be this mean, furious animal trainer where Thog is this sweet, adorable thing. And I I love it anyway. Yeah, Harvey Corman is really going for it though. This is like his this yeah. is the one decent bit that he has on on the episode. So he's really getting into it. Yeah. Er- earlier, Ryan, you said that Robin is the cutest Muppet and I disagree because here's Thog. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I probably wouldn't argue with that. <laughs> And he has those ears that, that can move up independently yeah. of each other. I, I actually don't know how that eyes. mechanism works inside the puppet, but it's, it's very it's, The ears and the eyes move. And so I'm just like, what? where are your hands? What are they doing? Like, how is that working? Well, that's why his mouth doesn't really move. <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> He's busy pulling too many levers. Because this is before they were doing radio control, right? I They may have been doing some radio control at this point, but I wouldn't. And also Thog was built a few years earlier. Yeah. for the the great Santa Claus Switch TV special. So yeah, they probably weren't really doing that much yet. Yeah. He is very cute. He is nine feet tall, according to yeah, the he's DVD. He's huge. You can see where the puppeteer's face is if you look closely, but it's incredibly well designed. I'm only you know I'm only looking because I'm me. Yeah, you wouldn't ordinarily notice it unless you're really scrutinizing for it. But yeah, Fog is nine feet tall and he's adorable and wonderful. He does this really cute thing where he calls Maurice the Magnificent Morris. <laughs> <laughs> when uh, he comes out of his cage and Harvey Corman says, I think a lady fainted. Check the first row. Help. <laughs> and he rushes out to see if the lady is okay, <laughs> which is just great. I get real young Harvey Firestein vibes from Thog. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> do you have, do you care to elaborate? Well, I mean, no. the, the voice, I, 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 I mean, the voice is very similar. Like the whole thing, like the Balzac joke feels like a, I think he'd make a smashing Edna Turnblad. 
Mm. <laughs> Make it happen. Tallest Edna ever. That sounds amazing. I want to see this so badly. But yeah, props to Harvey Corman's level of commitment to the bit because, like, the way he like spits out "black-hearted hellhound" is <laughs> he was also exquisite. he was known for breaking on the Carol Burnett show. Yeah, so I I'm either amazed that he didn't, or wonder how many takes it took for him not to. <laughs> yeah, and he had to waltz with Thog also, which must have taken some amount of concentration. <laughs> It's pretty great. Thog just scoops him up and starts dancing with him. <laughs> I love it so much. Uh, I want to put in one more contender for my, my favorite line of the week. This is really an easy trick. I wanted to ride a pony around the stage, but Horace is afraid of ponies. <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much. One of my friends was talking to me about this episode this week, and he pointed out that in some ways, this particular sketch is such like a brilliant takedown of toxic masculinity, which is not immediately what I would have thought when seeing it, but it is true, like in its own way. Um, you know, we have Thog is sort of the effete intellectual and Harvey Corman as the blustery macho man and and uh, just looking more and more ridiculous. And And we don't often think of these sketches is social commentary, but uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah. and we're definitely meant to laugh at Morris or or Maurice and laugh with Thog. So yeah, I'm on board with that. So next we've got our panel discussion uh, where the panel is discussing what is the meaning of life. Uh, Harvey Corman playing himself maintains that life is like a tennis game. Uh, He and everyone else make some truly rude jokes about Miss Piggy, which I see no reason to repeat. Can we at last get back to the issue, and the issue is life? Oh, I have the last issue of life. What? And before they stop publishing. (laughs) It'll be worth a pretty penny. Hey, I knew a pretty penny once. Penny Ferguson used to be a dancer. I love to dance. Hey, what are you doing after the show? I've got a date. Oh, well. That's life! (laughs) Oh, well. (laughs) They're both so disappointed. It's very odd. Yeah, I wish I didn't have a date with a chick. I could go out with this pig instead. <laughs> it's also very weird that Frank Oz is playing this character and not Piggy. Yep, that was my note. Was why is Frank not play, playing Piggy? In any time that like Piggy has to do something substantial, I get really frustrated. Right, and I know that, that they hadn't figured Piggy out yet, especially now that we know that this is actually an earlier made episode. But both times it happens in this episode, Frank Oz is playing a character who it doesn't seem like he needs to be playing. Not that he's not very good at it, but it it's, doesn't feel significant. Sometimes in the past when Piggy has been played by Richard Hunt, you, I sort of understand why. And in, in both this and Veterinarian's Hospital, which we'll get to, I've, it doesn't seem like Frank Oz couldn't do it. The other thing about this sketch is it's like probably 80% puns, which I guess a lot of the series is in this first season. The When they when they talk about life being a tennis game, yes, it is. No, it's not. They do do that, that cute bit where the, the rest of the panel is like, looking back and forth as if they're watching a tennis match, which is fun. But yeah, the rest of it is just all puns and it's too many puns. Bad pun! Exactly. (laughs) I also don't know that I really appreciated until this week, the extent to which the panel discussion is really just a piggy insult delivery Mm -hmm. mechanism. Like they all always seem to go to like a really swinest (laughs) place and I don't care for it. Yeah. It does help to know that they filmed this before the the Rita Moreno episode because they announced that next week they'll be discussing his conversation of dying art, which is, I believe, the the panel topic from her oh, episode. Yeah, it is. It, it's almost continuity. Almost. It is very cute and not worth an audio clip, but we can make a gif of it. It's very cute that when they say it's a dying art, all the Muppets on the panel just flop over and play dead in unison. They stay there for a I surprisingly left. long time. Like They really <laughs> look dead for a minute. Yeah, and Harvey Corman looks Not nearly as dead as that Muppet in the audience. <laughs> Get out of my head, David. <laughs> I think this is what they call a running gag. Oh, dear. Meanwhile, at the dance, uh, we've got another contender for my favorite line of the week. Oh, my beloved George, even though we come from two different worlds, I find myself strangely attracted to you. Yeah, I feel the same way. <gasps> you mean you're attracted to me? No. To me. Weird, huh? (laughs) 
That joke is so useful in so many ways. Yeah, I, I, I have quoted it myself. I like it a lot. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've heard you quote George it. finally understands love. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Mildred. All this time, George wanted to know what love was, and he found it in himself. You have a lot of questions about their relationship, though. Have you talked yet about the fact that a lot of these at-the-dance couples are performed by a single puppeteer? I think we've mentioned yes. it, but we haven't gone on at length about it. Do you have oh, I mean, that was just the fact that you, it, it's fun to picture them sticking both of their hands up in the air, dancing with like, with yeah, themselves. one of their hands dancing with the other hand. So like in this case, yeah, George and Mildred are both performed by Frank Oz. Is he doing both voices too? Yeah. Um, and oh, a piggy and is dancing with a pig and they're both performed uh, another pig. They're both performed by Richard Hunt and the sketch also. We also get in this, um, there's a, a, a man whose head is a balloon, which explodes, and his dance partner just starts fucking screaming. <laughs> <laughs> and she's one of those creepy humanoid muppets. She is. Well, I mean, not as creepy as Balloonhead, but uh, I just like <laughs> we've talked about the, the body horror stuff in the past, and a, a lot of it actually comes in at the dance in the form of jokes. And I appreciated that she had sort of an appropriate reaction to her dance partner's head exploding. <laughs> Yeah, most of the time it's just kind of yeah. funny. Like I'm really stuck on you. My nose came off. Ha ha. <laughs> this is I'm curious if the writers came up with this balloon guy first or the veterinarian's hospital balloon guy first, because we have two different Muppets whose bodies explode oh, in yeah. the same episode. There's right? a later episode too where there's a like I feel like there's a maybe a group of Muppets with balloon heads doing an act on stage. So they liked this gag. The moment that balloon guy appeared and at the dance, I was like, oh, it's Chekhov's balloon guy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know where it's going. That sounds about right. Yet. As long as we're talking about uh, exploding Muppets, <laughs> uh, before we get to the backstage plot, I want to talk about how much I love this veterinarian's hospital episode. Um, the patient shows up with an explosive case of the hiccups, and even hiccups that don't eventually lead to explosions are always going to make me laugh. <laughs> if you want to make me laugh, call me up when you have the hiccups. I will know. laugh at your pain. W will yeah. you offer any suggestions on how to get rid of them, or you'll just laugh? No, I'm going to be too busy okay. laughing. <laughs> hiccups are never not funny. Uh, but there's so much that I love about this sketch. The anesthetic that Dr. Bob gives the patient is a perfectly timed mallet to the head, and Dr. Bob is full of pathos and self-pity, and it's great. I was mentioning the puns in the panel discussion earlier, and in later seasons, Veterinarian's Hospital will kind of become mostly a delivery for bad puns. But here, this one hardly has any. It's mostly just all building up to the one punchline of the patient exploding. Building up literally. Yes. This man has a bad case of hiccups. Mm. It must be gas. <gasps> oh, he's in bad shape. He's in bad shape. What about me? Doesn't anybody ever think about me? Uh, we're losing time, Dr. Bob. So, I'm losing my mind. Day in and day out, it's the same old routine. Oh, uh, but Dr. Bob... I'm up to my ears in debt. My wife is leaving me. I'm being sued for malpractice. And all you can say is, but Dr. Bob. Uh, but Dr. Bob... I tell you, I tell you, I'm so on edge. I'm about to explode. Tune in next week when we'll hear the nurse say... Dr. Bob, you've got to pull yourself together. I'll try. Not you, him. I better quit while I'm ahead. It is funny that he's only ahead and makes that joke. It doesn't make sense to say, Dr. Bob, you've got to pull no, yourself that together doesn't when make you're sense not talking all. to Dr. Bob. Not at all. I do like, given that the last time we talked about Veterans Hospital, the patient died and it sort of wasn't funny. <laughs> <laughs> that somehow this patient has survived his ordeal. There's hope for him. I also like that Dr. Bob's uh, hat, which is, I guess, sewn onto Ralph's head, when he becomes so stressed out at the very end, it's, the, the hat sort of falls off, but it's still dangling by a thread or, or whatever's keeping it there. So it's just kind of dangling in front of his eyes. Well, that's good hygiene. It's not going to drop into any of the surgery I guess so, yeah. All, all surgeons should sew their hats to their foreheads. I guess that's not funny. <laughs> so shall we talk about the backstage plot? I mean, I don't know whether it really qualifies as a backstage plot. It does begin backstage, which is already a bit of a milestone. Harvey Corman, the guest star, is backstage. And he does not have time to worry about the ecology. Hey, you know what? 
You know, we've been up all night worrying about ecology. And I'm right in the middle of a show. I don't have time to worry about ecology. Well, that's easy for you, but if all those trees go, we're in big trouble. It's really great working with dogs. I hated this. <laughs> she wasn't funny. Because he's so annoyed at Muppets the whole time? I, I hate him being... Yeah, I hate the attitude he takes with the Muppets. I hate that Rolf and Muppy are somehow put on the same level as each other. That is against the laws of nature. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't want it. It just hasn't aged well. That, you know, they're, they're worried about the trees. Like, the joke is because they're dogs and they pee on them, I think. It's not a very good joke. And then in 2021, it's like, oh, no, that's not why we're worried, you guys. Yeah, I don't love it when Ralph does these just like I'm a dog type jokes. But yeah, we definitely wouldn't be making jokes about the ecology today. It does sort of date it. Anyway. So the talk spot. (laughs) Yeah. Harvey Corman is upset. The major problem is that... I'm the only human being on this show. How's that again? You heard me. I'm the token person around here. We've never had that complaint before. Yeah, well, you got it now. How'd you like to sit around the dressing room surrounded by dogs and frogs and pigs and chickens? I've never really thought about it. Yeah, well, think about it. I mean, on, on other shows, you get stage fright. Here you get hoof and mouth disease. <laughs> Gee, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't realize you disliked dogs and frogs and pigs and chickens. I like dogs and frogs and pigs and chickens. That's the point. The point is, I just feel funny about being the only human being here. Don't you understand? Fortunately, we can fix that. All we need to do is uh, call in the entire gang and dress up Harvey Corman as an enormous chicken, which he will remain for the rest of the show. And which would make an incredible cosplay if anybody is tired of trying and failing to build a Muppet costume that looks right on a human. I've I've tried with, I would say, some mixed success, but it never really quite works. This, though, this would work. And you could also tell people that you are Margaret, the boat captain from Gonzo's Act in Muppets Take Manhattan. Yeah, I've always wondered if this is actually the same costume or if it's just like they use the same pattern to make another one for the movie. I don't know. Do you think this one would hold up? For, for guess, 10 years, I don't know. Because this one also they, they reused as a puppet to be a giant chicken in a couple episodes in the second season. Did they reuse the costume or did they, I, they, they sort of rebuild con- it as a Muppet? Yeah, converted it to a, a Muppet without a... I mean, I, there's a person inside it performing it, but yeah, it's, it's more of a regular Muppet. Yeah, well then I'm going to guess based on whatever foam they needed to tack in there for it to be a puppet. That it's it's not no longer available for a costume by the time they made the Muppets Take Manhattan, but that's a guess. Yeah, um, there was also a giant man-eating chicken in the uh, John Denver and the Muppets Rocky Mountain Holiday TV special. Giant so chickens are never. There's not a history funny. of giant chickens in the Muppets. I would argue that this giant chicken is not funny, <laughs> just because there's no payoff. Like the image of him in the costume is very funny, and then they don't really. He's kind of done for the rest of the episode. There's a blackout spot, but. He doesn't really do anything. I mean, he does briefly, sorry, he does briefly look happy. It's true. <laughs> when he when they first dressed him up. It's the only smile we get out of Harvey Corman. Yeah, I would have liked if he had been, sort of to Chrissy's point about having him do a song, like it would have been nice to have him do, you know, have to do something in the chicken costume for further humiliation. And oh, that would have been better. For him to just do a song with the rest of the Muppet chickens. Yeah. 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 It's too bad that that the Gonzo chicken relationship has not yet been developed because that would have been like the <laughs> ultimate payoff here. Yeah, yeah. Nobody flirts with this guest star, and they've got him dressed up as a chicken. Yeah, we really—that's not true. The pig flirted with him. Oh, that's true. <laughs> I yeah, I can't believe I said that. It, nobody flirted with him in the talk spot. But yeah, just imagine a, a Harvey Corman ain't nobody here but but us chickens. Fozzie has a comedy bit, and it's actually really funny. Frog of my heart, you will just wait until I say the word here. When you hear me say the word here, you will rush up to me and say, Good grief, the comedians are there. Good grief, the comedians are there. Check. When you say the word here. Right. Gotcha. Okay, here we go. Ready? Okay, here we go. Now then. Hiya, hiya, hiya. You're a wonderful looking audience. It's a pleasure to be here. Good grief, the comedians are there. You just said here. That was the wrong here. Which is the right here? The other here. 
Go, go, go. Hey, hey, folks. This is a story you're going to love to hear. Good grief. The comedian's a man. What you said here? Not that here. No wish here. Another here. Oh, my God, no. You know what you hear. Good grief. The comedian's a every time it's so great and it's it's really early on but they've really perfected frank and jim's characters getting exasperated and yelling at each other is the height of comedy it was then it is now it's still perfect uh according to the dvd uh jerry jewel one of the writers said uh quote the sketch was the turning point for fozzy's character now the writers saw a way to make him funny unquote and that seems true I think the thing before this was he was just this sort of sad sack comedian who told bad jokes and Statler and Waldorf yelled at him and you just kind of felt bad for him. But this is like, he's dragging Kermit into it. He's so, he's so confident that this is actually a funny bit. And then even when it turns out to be not that funny, he's still just so convinced that this is a hilarious joke. So this is, this is a more endearing Fozzie than we've seen before. Oh yeah. From the moment he calls him frog in my heart, I'm sold. Yes. Yeah, it's also yeah, perfect for that dynamic. <laughs> Which is like a piggy thing, right? I mean, it works, but... I well, mean, it's right. a Frank Oz thing. <laughs> I just want to get the uh, the closing punchline of this. Good grief, the comedian's a bear! <laughs> no, he's a nut! He's a wearer in a necktie! Did you understand that joke? No, but I don't speak Italian. Yeah, I'm glad you had the Statler and Waldorf uh, line in there, because it's the perfect button. So we've got a Muppet News flash, uh, in which... Harvey Corman plays a middleweight champion who discusses his plans to defend his title against himself and in the process uh, manages to knock himself out. Hey, Ryan, did you understand this joke? No, but I don't speak Italian either. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I think this is just a really dumb... I'm, I'm so glad that they eventually landed on the premise of the newsman falls victim to the terrible things that are happening in his stories, because these weird character bits in the first season are never very funny. Yeah. The guest stars are always trying their best and it just never works. Yeah. Yeah, You can get quite an education watching this show. Are we watching the same show? All right. uh, Ryan. Where else can people find you? What else should people know about you? Um, the Muppet Fan website that I co-own and operate is toughpigs.com. Once again, the the podcast where we talk about Muppet movies is Moving Right Along, a Muppet movie podcast. And in the unlikely event that anyone would want to follow me on Twitter and read my nonsense, I am at me, Ryan Rowe. Recently, I have been... Uh, talking about the tv show alf as i've been watching my way through it and that's a puppet thing so maybe people want to read that stuff thanks for listening to this episode of muppeturgy join us next week for our discussion of the lena horn episode you can find us on twitter instagram and facebook at muppeturgy or on the web at muppeturgy.com if you like what we're doing please spread the word and offer a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts our theme music was composed and performed by christy bauer our show logo was created by todd brian backus and this episode was edited by me david levy Cookie Monster is like if Animal was neutered. Yeah. (laughs) I don't even know what to make of that. I'm sorry. Now you have to think about both of them having genitals. Yep. Yep. (laughs) That's why I'm staying silent. Yeah. I mean, he's torn off the bottom of his pants, but maybe the pants are there for a reason. I can't believe we're having this. (laughs) But just, I I guarantee you, if you want to learn more about this, there are lots of images that are just a Google away. Oh yeah. They're out there. Who are these weird people?